morning, TLC. Woo, we got a packed house this morning. Uh, I don't think we need to scoot in, but if you do see somebody looking for a seat, maybe uh, scoot in if you have a chair. Hey, got a little game for you this morning, okay? I'm going to say a quote, just one quote. Uh, it'll, it'll be a short game. Uh, and I want you to guess, if anybody has a guess, of who said this, okay? Are you ready? Thumbs up. All right, here we go. Where there is no vision, there is no hope. No, Jesus, I mean, Jesus maybe said that, but that, I'm not quoting Jesus. Anybody, any guesses besides my brother and sister-in-law who I told last night who said this? Oh, that's true. You get the prize if no one else guesses. All right, I'm going to show a picture of him. Carly, you don't get to guess. Carly looked at my notes this week. She's like, anybody? Tayton. Oh, give it up for Tayton. Tayton, hey, Tayton, come get your prize, baby. I got a Reese egg for you. Now, here's why I have a Reese egg. Does anybody know George Washington Carver's nickname? Probably not. It's, it's uh, the peanut man. Peanut butter, peanut man. You understand what I'm saying? George Washington Carver said, where there is no vision, there is no hope. Now, we, George Washington Carver is one of the people that we might expect least to have hope after the life that he lived. He was born into slavery in the state of Missouri. Early, early in his childhood, he was kidnapped with his mother and his sister and then resold into slavery in the state of Kentucky, only to be soon after retrieved by his previous owner and made a slave again back in Missouri, separated from his mother and sister. All this took place early, early in his childhood. By the time he was 11, he had a vision to become educated. And so he began to pursue education. In 1894, he became the first African-American to earn a bachelor's degree in this country due to restrictions that had been imposed prior to that. He specialized in the field of agriculture and sort of trailblazed in agriculture, inventing over 300 products from peanuts, hence the nickname the peanut man, you know what I'm saying? When he died, he was voted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. President Roosevelt uh, erected a monument in his honor, which at that time was a, uh, an honor reserved for only George Washington and Abe Lincoln. That was the list at the time. His life was an exemplar of his quote, where there is no vision, there is no hope. George Washington Carver had vision, he had hope. This morning, we look into the life of a prophet in the Old Testament named Jeremiah, who, similar to George Washington Carver, lived a life that many of us might not expect a whole lot of hope from. Jeremiah was ridiculed, he was ignored, he was imprisoned by his own people for telling them that destruction would come. And when it came, he didn't offer a, ha ha, I told you so. Instead, he offered, in the darkest of the dark days, as we'll read in the text this morning, a message of hope. I believe it's the same hope that God wants to speak into our lives today. So if you would, I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles. If you brought one, phone, we'll have it on the screen. We're going to dig into Jeremiah chapter 32. We're just going to start with the first two verses this morning as we continue this series, Run With the Horses, a series looking into the life of the prophet Jeremiah, some of his key moments in his life that helped sum up his book, his ministry, and his life. Okay, here we go. These are the first two verses of chapter 32 in the book of Jeremiah. It says this, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. So the scene is set. Jeremiah is in prison, 
and the Babylonians are besieging Jerusalem. All right, so first, why is Jeremiah in prison? Really quick, good question. Why is Jeremiah in prison? Well, he's been telling the king of Judah, this guy named Zedekiah, that the Babylonians are going to come for them and that destruction is on their way and that everyone should give up. They should receive this. They should leave. And he's been telling King Zedekiah specifically that he's going to be taken as a prisoner and dealt with by another king. All things that you shouldn't say to a king if you don't want to go to prison, right? So Zedekiah does not like Jeremiah. He accuses him of treason. Hence, we have the whole prison situation with Jeremiah. All right, so that's first, Jeremiah's in prison. Second, it says the, that uh, the Babylonians were besieging Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, without getting into too many of the weeds here, the Babylonians had sort of, they were this powerful empire, and they had been for the last decade or so starting to sort of occupy and impose their power on this tiny city of Jerusalem, this tiny nation of Judah. Now, some of the people, some of Jeremiah's people had decided to leave because of this. Others had decided to stay, and some of the people that had decided to stay thought it was a good idea to enlist the help of some neighbors, the Egyptians, to sort of push the Babylonians out. And that failed miserably. All it did was make the Babylonians really angry. And so they decided that they were going to come in, they were going to conquer, they were going to destroy, and, uh, and it was not going to be good for Jeremiah and his people. And it's in this moment, sort of like the darkest of the dark days, the Babylonians are besieging the city. We know that at this moment in time, they've blockaded the city, their, camp, their armies are camped out in the surrounding areas. They're about to launch an attack. And this is the moment that we have where Jeremiah speaks a message of hope and Jeremiah offers an act of hope. All right, let's read here. Let's continue reading. Verses 6 through 8. It says, verses 3 through 5, we're skipping. It's just explaining why Jeremiah's in prison. We already went over that. All right, so verse 6 through 8 of chapter 32 says this. Jeremiah said, so Jeremiah's in prison. He, he says this. The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then Imagine this, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. Jeremiah says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah hears God tell him to do something, and then that something, that opportunity presents itself, right? And, and what, what we have here from Hanamel, we're not sure exactly the, the, the circumstances that led him to come to Jeremiah and say, hey, buy my field. It's possible that Hanamel has sort of come to the city to seek refuge from the impending attacks. It's possible Hanamel has like heard Jeremiah in uh, the time just before this. Jeremiah's starting to offer people hope. He's saying that God's still with them and that there's hope for their future. And Hanamel's like, what are you talking about, cuz? Put your money where your mouth is if there's still hope. Buy my field because Babylonians are camping on it right now. Right? It's possible that that's what's going on. It's possible that the family's dealt with some financial troubles, a loss in the family. We, regardless of the circumstance, we know that Hanamel comes to Jeremiah and he says, buy my field. And this request from Hanamel is ridiculous. There is an enemy siege underway. We have good reason to believe the Babylonians are camping on the field that Hanamel offers to Jeremiah to buy. The request from Hanamel to Jeremiah is ridiculous. It reminds me, actually, of a request that I received recently from a student at Kenosha Elementary School. One of our values at TLC is would she weep, right? This idea that we want to love and serve our city so well she would mourn if we were gone. And one of the ways that plays itself out is a partnership with this school in Grand Rapids called Kenosha Elementary School. And I get the privilege to have a presence there on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I work 
lunch and recess with the kindergarten and second graders, and it is awesome, okay? I can open milk cartons faster than you can say milk cartons, which is a real achievement, okay? Uh, and so one time, uh, about two weeks ago, the, there was a second grader named Bishop. I walked into the cafeteria. Bishop started eyeing me, and uh, he said, Mr. Austin, that's what they call me, Mr. Austin, I like your sneakers. These are the sneakers I had on, right? I think they're pretty cool. They're a little beat up, but I think they're still pretty cool. And uh, I was like, man, thanks, Bishop. So before I could even say thanks, Bishop, he grabbed a chicken nugget off his tray and said, as serious as he possibly could, no, no joking, no ounce of joking in his soul, he said, I'll give you a chicken nugget for your sneakers. <laughs> then he said, to make himself clear, if you want to trade me. The request was ridiculous, but what really made me mad was this man was being cheap on me. He had five nuggets on his tray, and he had offered one nugget for my sneakers. I'm like, bro, if you really like them, at least offer five nuggets. Maybe then we can have a conversation, right? This request from Bishop was ridiculous. It reminds me of the ridiculousness of this request from Hanamel to his cousin, Jeremiah. Like, here's what I mean. The Babylonians are literally camping on the field that Hanamel is offering his cousin. Soon, the city would be leveled. Hundreds and thousands might be killed. Walls, homes, the temple would be destroyed. And Hanamel comes to his cousin and says, I've got an offer you can't refuse. Want to buy my field? This request is unbelievable. But Jeremiah's response is even more unbelievable. Let's read. Verses 9 through 15 says this. So Jeremiah's like, so I bought the field at Anathoth. <laughs> I love that so much. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mashiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, hey, I really bought this thing, okay? I went through the whole process. It's mine, okay? All right, verse 13, it says this. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. Baruch is his friend. He's probably the one who wrote. Uh, the whole book of Jeremiah. And it says that this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is bananas. This is bananas, what Jeremiah does. Babylonians are camping on the field that Jeremiah decides he's going to purchase. Jeremiah doesn't, he buys a field that he knows he's never going to walk through. He's never going to prune a grapevine from. He's never going to plant an olive tree. He's never going to build a house at. He buys a field that he will never see. And he knew it. It was against all conventional reason. It was against public opinion. It was against history. It was against Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Jeremiah clearly hadn't been to that. What is he doing? What is he thinking, right? I'm kidding about that. I love Dave Ramsey, you know, no, uh, no shame. Uh, and so, like, what is Jeremiah doing? Why would he buy this field? Well, I'll tell you why De- Jeremiah didn't buy this field. Jeremiah didn't buy this field because it was a good investment. 
He didn't buy this field because there was geopolitical reasons to think he might be coming back one day. He didn't buy this field because he was going to build a barnuminium on the, on the field and, and host weddings and make a ton of cash one day. Jeremiah bought this field in Anathoth for one reason and one reason only. God told him to. Jeremiah weighed out 17 shekels. He, he, he signed the right paperwork. He gathered the witnesses. He bought this field in Anathoth because he was convinced deep down in his bones that God would save this land and that God would save this people because God told him he would. You see, more important than the Babylonians camping on the field that Jeremiah was purchasing more important than the city that would soon be leveled, more important than the city or the destruction that would take place, was the fact that Jeremiah knew God would save this land, God would save this people, God is who he said he is, God will fulfill his promises. Jeremiah has been telling these people for years and years and years, for, to anyone who will listen, hey, the Babylonians are coming, destruction is on its way, and now that it's arrived, his message is this. There is more here than you can see. There is more here than you can see. There is more than the Babylonians at the gate. There is God in your midst. There is more here than Babylonians at the gate. There is God here in your midst. Jeremiah offered in the darkest of the dark days a vision of hope, a message of hope, an act of hope. And it's the same hope that I think God wants to speak into our lives today. That there is more than loneliness at the gate of your life. There is a God in your midst, a God who is with you and for you, and wants to bring hope and rescue. There is more than your family situation, a divorce or a loss in the family at the gate of your life. There is God in your midst. There is more than the unhappiness you feel at work or the confusion you feel about your career or the exhaustion that you feel from your job at the gate of your life. There is God in your midst. And there is more than the way you feel when you look in the mirror. There is more than the friends that have abandoned you. There's more than the sin or the struggle that you continue to deal with at the gate of your life. There is God in your midst, a God who is with you, a God who is for you, a God who wants to bring hope and rescue. And I think some of us need to hear that this morning. We need to hear the hope of God declared over us that houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Jeremiah was a prophet. Prophets speak for God, right? When they speak, they communicate something about God, the character of God, who God is. But there's moments in the scriptures when prophets do what's called a prophetic act, where instead of using words, they use an action to communicate something about who God is. And when all seems lost, when all seems broken, when all seems without hope, God tells Jeremiah to do this prophetic act, to buy a field during an enemy siege because that's who God is. Because God comes in when all seems lost, when all seems without hope, when all seems broken and brings redemption and restoration and hope and life. That's who God is. 
Now, if I'm honest, I think that there's some people in the room this morning who are starting to respond internally to what's being said in a certain kind of way. A way that is met with a a little bit of understandable cynicism. Like, are you really saying what what Jeremiah did? Are you really saying what you're inviting us into this way of just like ignoring reality, basically? Like, hey, everything's fine. Like, God's here, right? Just bury your head, your head in the sand. Ignore reality. Everything's fine. Everything's dandy. It's all rainbows and butterflies. And you're like, but this is going on in my life. I get that. I feel that. I was feeling that way recently. I was listening to a podcast with a woman named Christine Kane. Anybody Christine Kane fans? She has some like, yeah, she's got some real pumped up people and because uh, she's awesome. She's the director of an international ministry, an incredible church leader. She was speaking on this podcast and I was listening to and she was talking about this. She was talking about praying God's presence, praying God's promises the way that Jeremiah did, the way that Jeremiah acted on these in the midst of pain and confusion. And kind of addressing the fact that it feels like what's going on? Are we really just kind of like ignoring like what's happening when we do this? And she said something so profound. It stuck with me. She said that when we pray God's presence and promises in the midst of pain and confusion, that we're not denying reality. We are declaring it. She said that when we pray God's hope, when we pray God's presence, when we pray God's promises in the midst of our pain and confusion, we are not denying reality, we are declaring it. And what I think she means is is that you don't have to deny the visible reality around you, the things that are happening, even the bad things that are happening around you, to declare the essential reality of God's presence and God's promises in the midst of our life, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our confusion. We can declare the reality of God's presence and promises above and over, within, and through each of these things, each of these moments. Now, this is kind of like heady language, right? So l- l- let, me, let me clarify visible and essential reality, okay? Well, here's what, here's what I mean when I say this. Visible reality. I think, we, I think we've got it, right? Visible reality, what I see in front of me. Plain and simple. Visible reality is what I see in front of me, right? Essential reality, when I say that, what I mean is the things that are true, even when I can't see it, and even when I don't feel it, these are, this is essential reality. So a couple examples, all right? A couple examples. Essential reality, the hardships of finals. College students, high school students, yeah, hard, Finals, hard, right? Visible reality. Essential reality of that, I won't always be in school, right? Essential or visible reality, this one's close to home. My doom ward will not sleep. Essential reality, he will grow up one day and beg for naps, right? <laughs> Please don't send me an email with your sleeping tips. Uh, I, they're appreciated, but I, we're, we're trying, okay? Anyway, uh, visible reality, <laughs> you are running a race in this life and it's hard. Essential reality, there is rest and a feast with Jesus at the end of this race. Visible reality, essential reality. This is what Christine Kane is getting at. Now, let me clarify what Christine Kane is not getting at, okay? She is not saying that all you have to do is believe in that house, believe in that car, believe in that lifestyle, whatever. Manifest it, declare it, believe it, and it will happen, baby. That's not what Christine Kane is saying. What she's saying is, you don't have to deny the things that are going on around you, this visible reality, to also speak into above, over, within, and through the essential reality of God's presence and God's promises 
over those things. We have to have the vision. We have to have the eyes to see both of these things, visible and essential. And I think it's this awareness. I think it's this vision of the essential reality of God's presence and promises that that prompted Jeremiah to, to speak and to act in such a way to buy this field in Anathoth during an enemy siege. Eugene Peterson, who, who wrote a book, Run With the Horses, talking about Jeremiah in this moment, buying this field, he says this, he says that Jeremiah was deeply in touch with a reality that most of us ignore. He was deeply in touch with a reality that most of us ignore, the reality of God's presence and God's promises. And so before we get a little too cynical about this hope stuff, I think we have to consider the possibility that it's as important for us to pay attention to the essential reality of God's presence and promises as it is to pay attention to our visible reality of diapers and emails and diagnoses and uh, misbehaving students and getting cut off while you're driving in traffic, right? All these things are happening and they're important, just as important as the essential reality of God's presence and promises in the midst of those things over, above, within, and through. So Jeremiah wasn't denying the visible reality around him of his imprisonment and the Babylonians' siege that was upon them. He was declaring the essential reality of God's presence and promises in the midst of those things when he bought that field. The same way that you're not denying reality when you hold on to the hope of God's promises in the midst of uncertainty about your future or your health or your job. You're declaring it. The same way you're not denying reality when you trust in the goodness of God, even in the midst of what feels like unanswered prayer after unanswered prayer after unanswered prayer. You're declaring it. You're not denying reality when you obey the will of God with how to spend your time or your efforts or your money. When everyone else says, spend it this way, and you say, spend it this way because God told me to, you're not denying reality. You are declaring it. You are not denying reality when you cling to God's presence when it feels like everyone else has abandoned you. You're declaring it. And if you ever feel insane, if you ever feel crazy, know that you're in good company because Jesus did this declaring reality, denying stuff all of the time. Jesus did it, in fact, even in one of the final moments of his life. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's being crucified next to some actual criminals. And one of the criminals speaks up to him and asks him, in verse 42, he says this to Jesus. He says, the criminal, Jesus, remember me when when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him in verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this phrase from Jesus, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise, is so interesting on so many levels. One of the things that's most interesting is this word paradise. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that word paradise, it's, it's the Greek word paradisos. And that word paradisos, it was used in the Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew, and, it, and it's most simply translated as garden. 
garden. The word has roots in a, in a Persian word, actually, like paradisus, I think is how you say it. And, and it's this word that was used in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, to refer to the Garden of Eden in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And it's the word that Jesus utters to this criminal. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in the garden. Now, we could get into so many different things with this phrase, with this moment in the life of Jesus, truly. We could, I mean, what does Jesus mean here? Is the criminal going to heaven? Is Jesus going to heaven? Like, what's going on, right? That's a whole other sermon, whole other sermon, okay? I bring our minds to this image. I bring our minds to this moment in the life of Jesus to make just a super simple observation, super simple. Observation is this. While the world saw a man being crucified, headed to the grave, Jesus knew he was headed to the garden. And he even invited others along the way. Jesus wasn't denying reality. He was declaring it. He wasn't hanging on the cross saying, well, I'm not really being crucified. He was just declaring the essential reality of God's presence and God's promises. They may think we're headed to the grave, but I'll see you in the garden. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that Jeremiah acted on. That's the hope that led him to buy a field during an enemy siege. And it's the hope that I think we need to hear this morning. If we are going to run with the horses, live life at its best with God and for God, we need this hope. I'd like to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of response and worship. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that this morning, the, the way that Freddie said, I pray that this morning that each of us would just feel like you, God, Father, are just wrapping your arms around us. Whether we're tired, whether we're frustrated, whether we've gone astray, whether we're suffering, whatever it is, that this morning we come running to you and you, wrap, you come running to us, wrapping your arms around us, offering us your hope, offering us your life. Help us respond in worship this morning. Help us declare the, the reality of the hope that you offer us this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, that we gather. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to respond in worship this morning. We're going to declare this reality of the hope that we have in God's presence and God's promises. Because we serve a God who tells a prophet to buy a field during an enemy siege. We serve a God who turns despair into hope. We serve a God who turns lost into found. We serve a God who turns graves into gardens. Let's sing.